Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus, a probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker and I thought if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. Tossing and turning all night like a salad. It's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. Many of us will go back and forth between drinking and not drinking for years. And what holds us back is this idea that our drinking isn't that bad so we don't have to stop. So what are we supposed to do if our drinking makes us unhappy but we haven't hit a rock bottom yet? Maybe you're beating yourself up for not being motivated enough to quit or wishing that you had enough self-discipline or courage, but it actually has nothing to do with that. That's why I asked Eric Zimmer 
behavior coach, and host of the top podcast, The One You Feed, to join us today to talk about how to get past this and make sobriety really stick. We discuss why a lack of external consequences keeps many of us stuck in this back and forth cycle, what to do if you get sober but still don't feel great, and how you can start feeling more hopeful about your recovery. When Eric was 24, he was homeless, addicted to heroin, and facing long jail sentences. He got into recovery, and as you'll hear in this interview, years later he decided that maybe drinking was an okay thing to do. He'll explain more about the first time he went into recovery and the second time and how they were different from each other. He's worked as a behavior coach for the past 20 years, and he's coached hundreds of people from all around the world on how to make significant life changes and create habits that serve them well in achieving the goals that they've set for themselves. His podcast, The One You Feed, is a top 10 mental health podcast with over 30 million downloads. So if you haven't listened to that yet, you should definitely check it out. And let's get to the conversation. Welcome to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you, Jill. I am really happy to be here. So I've been familiar with your work for a while, obviously. I think a lot of people have. But then we met in real life at Podcast Movement Conference um, back in March. And then after that, that's when I started learning more like about your story and your and your life besides your show. Um, and I am really interested in your idea of spirituality. I think in the past, I've always kind of dismissed it for myself as a non-religious person. I just assumed it wasn't for me. But you've talked a lot about perspective and mindset. And I feel like that's one of the most important parts of my journey. And that has made me feel more open to like what spirituality actually is versus what I assumed it was. For anyone in my position who feels that way too, could you just give us a little quick explanation of what you believe spirituality is in recovery or in general? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. It's one of those words, it's kind of like love. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Spirituality to me, at its most basic, is about connecting with the things that matter most to us. It's about, you know, how do we connect to the things that mean the most to us? And so that's going to be different for everybody. I call my program spiritual habits, but I could have easily probably called it philosophical habits. I could have called it psychological habits, right? The the spiritual that I've spent most of my time studying in is Buddhism. And it is very difficult to tell where is it spirituality or religion or where is it a psychology? Where is it a theory of mind? That's what I'm talking about with spirituality is what matters most to us, what is really important to us. And for most of us, we'll, we'll realize that's something usually deeper than the surface level of things that we spend a lot of our time worrying about. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> We're all guilty of it. 
I mean, that's life, you know? I got sober in a 12-step tradition, and it's kind of stamped all through that program that you need a spiritual solution. And that was a phrase I, I didn't have any problem with the spiritual element of it, but I had a lot of problems with the God elements of it. Yeah, and I think that's why I've connected the two, because a lot of people will talk about spirituality, but then they'll also talk about God at the same time. So I'm like, they're the same then, and they're not. People tend to equate spirituality either with religion or they equate it with some really out there type (laughs) new age practices, you know, like lots of things get lumped under spirituality, you know, connecting with angels, recalling former lives, you know, my spirituality is very, you know, my podcast subtitle is, you know, practical wisdom for a better life. So I'm very pretty practical in, I think, in the way that I approach spirituality. So I've heard you tell your story a couple times on other shows, and I think the parts that stood out the most to me were you said that when you first got sober, um, when you were like 24-ish or 25, you really embraced the 12-step program and everything they had to say, and you just were so desperate for a change. And then eventually you went to drinking, and I heard you say that when you stopped again, you had to kind of find your own path, and you realized that even though you embraced the this thing that you thought was going to help you, like it wasn't the best fit for you. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And I and you said something about like how you can be so desperate the first time and then the second time, like you haven't really ridden the elevator all the way down and, and it's much harder to commit. And I think there's a lot of people that are listening to this right now that are in that situation where it's like not bad enough yet. It's pretty hmm. bad, but it's like it could get worse and they have a lot of at least, you know, at least I have whatever job, at least, you know, my family, I I have a house. And they go back and forth and back and forth between like dabbling in sobriety and then going back. And that's the main reason that I wanted to talk to you today is because I know that's a big part of your story and that's your expertise as a behavior coach and in your spirituality. So I'm interested in, first of all, why you decided to start doing that work because you were in IT, I think, before and then you made a huge switch. So what made you want to make that switch? Well, um, I mean, there's there's a, a variety of things kind of in, in what you said there. But as far as what made the switch was I'd started a solar energy company and it eventually didn't work, you know, for a variety of reasons. I became very disheartened and I decided to shut it down. And when I did, I was not in a great place in a variety of aspects. I was in a really bad marriage. I was deeply disheartened by this company that I had put my heart and soul into having failed. I was bored in my traditional sort of software. Uh, software development type career. Um, And so I just decided to start the podcast because A, I thought it would be really good for me to interview people about what it means to live a good life. You know, and I was like, these are these kind of books I read, I tend to read them anyway. And then my best friend, Chris was an audio engineer. And I thought, well, you know, then he could be, we could do it together. So I had these reasons for starting it. And I did not start it thinking that it was a career in any way, shape or form. I just started it thinking it was something that would be good for me and I would enjoy doing. And then that eventually evolved into wanting it to be your career. Yeah. Then, I mean, it went well. I mean, the podcast world was a very different space eight years ago, right? Radically different. But, you know, we got some pretty good early traction to my great surprise. And then as a couple years went on and we were like, oh, now we have some sponsors. And and then I decided I was going to try doing one-on-one coaching with people. And as it went on, I finally got to a point where I was like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe I can make this work as my life. So four and a half years into starting the podcast, I was able to leave my sort of day job and do this full time. 
When you were sober the first time and you embraced your program, what do you think happened? Like, why do you think it wasn't enough to keep you sober? It actually was enough to keep me sober. Maybe I'll clarify that a little bit. When I got sober, it was 1994 in Columbus, Ohio, and the only thing on offer was Alcoholics Anonymous, and the only spirituality that was really on offer was God, as in like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, right? It just was a conservative area in a very different time in the world. So when I came in, I went, I'm desperate. I will believe what they want me to believe, right? I weighed 100 pounds. That's like 50 pounds less than I weigh today, and I'm not a big person, right? Like I was going to jail potentially for like 40 years. I mean, things were not good. So I was very desperate. Um, So I said, I'll just embrace whatever. And I tried to really believe in the God thing. And then several years into my sobriety, my wife at the time I had used with, and we had both gotten sober together and we had a son together and he was two years old. And I came home one day and she said, I'm in love with someone else and I'm leaving. And the person she fell in love with was somebody from our AA meetings. My life kind of fell apart. I was just sucker punched by that. What I realized in that moment was that the spirituality that I had was not deep enough or real enough to handle that. I had this sort of idea of like God was this being out there and if I did good things, God would give me good things and clearly is not the way the world works, right? And so that and the combination of then I was just, I was mad at AA. Like, how are they letting this happen? Now, again, that's ridiculous. Like, I knew even then, like, you can't can't be mad at AA. Like it spoiled something in it for me. There was this thing I had in AA that I loved so deeply and it mattered so much to me. And then this, you know, kind of like a turd in the punch bowl, right? Like it was just like, gosh. So I started drifting away from AA. And then as I drifted away, I started to engage in other behaviors that were not really healthy for me. I started becoming promiscuous. I started smoking. I had never smoked. I'd become a heroin addict without ever smoking cigarettes. And yet I started smoking. So clearly things were heading off the rails. Then my brother, who had gotten sober about a year after me, announced that he had been drinking again for a year and had been going great. And that was sort of the nail in the the coffin for me, so to speak, because I was like, oh, look, I thought it was this genetic thing. I must not have it. You know what? I bet I can go out and drink. I was doing heroin before. We all can agree that's a bad idea. You know, I've done a lot of therapy. I've done a lot of AA. I'm sure I'll be fine. And I was at first. I went back to drinking and smoking pot and I was fine at first. Matter of fact, I was fine up till the end if you looked at external consequences. When I got sober, I had just gotten promoted to the best job I'd ever had. I was making more money than I had ever had. On the outside, everything was good. And you compare that to what my bottom was before, which was so low. But I had gotten a enough of a taste of recovery to know that it wasn't so much about what was happening outside. It was about what was happening inside. And what I saw inside was I am out of control again. Alcohol is the most important thing to me. Now, there are things I have not done yet, but they could happen. I was driving around with my son in the car, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, I only had a couple shots, you know, like that's not much for me. So when I got sober, um, and there were a couple different things that went into it, you sort of mentioned there was that point, and part of the thing was it wasn't that bad. By one measure, it wasn't that bad. And that makes it harder. You know, that made it harder for me. The first time, I was so thoroughly beaten by drugs and alcohol. The second time was much more of a intellectual exercise. I had to kind of keep asking myself, do I really have to keep using until I do something just tragically stupid? Do I really have to keep 
confusing until I wake up and my son is 15 and I realize like I haven't been there. Can I have enough wisdom to go, you know what, this isn't going in a good direction. Can I just step off here instead of, you know, we use the term bottom a lot, you know, which is kind of a fake term, right? What does a bottom mean? I mean, I know people who've gotten sober with what to me would seem like no consequence at all. And I have seen people dragged through the gates of hell who keep using. And so bottom is even in itself is a, an idea that I think it speaks to a truth, which is consequences matter. But to say that there's a bottom, I think is, it's just kind of, as they say, when you stop digging. So I just had to realize, like, I don't need an external bottom to recognize an internal state of this isn't right. Yeah. And I think that is the hardest thing for so many of us is we keep using this idea of what the bottom should be and why we are not that person to justify why what we're doing is okay. Like, oh, everyone else drinks the way that I do or everyone around me drinks and they black out sometimes. Like, why should I stop? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole movement that has emerged. Um, I'm sure you're closer to it than I am in a lot of ways. But, you know, I think they call it the, the, you know, one of the terms for it is the sober curious model. But I remember reading a book by somebody who sort of got, came up in that area and then did get fully, you know, fully into, you know, sobriety. And she just posed the simplest of all questions. Would my life be better without alcohol in it? And I was like, oh, well, I guess you don't really have to take 12 question survey. You don't really have to like, would my life be better if I didn't have this in it? Now, that is even that is a difficult calculus, right? Because for those of us who are really embedded in our use, we're using because it's making something better, right? It's doing something. It may not be doing it very well anymore. It may not be as effective, but it had a role and a point and a purpose. I often, you know, think of like the first time that I used, it was like 100% good, 0% bad. And then that ratio starts changing gradually, fast, it depends on you and the person and the substance. But then that ratio starts to be like, well, it's about 50-50. And then you're like, well, it's, you know. And for me, at the end of my heroin addiction, it was like, it was 5% good. And I was clinging to that 5% despite huge amounts of wreckage in my life. But that 5% still felt important enough that I fought for it for, <laughs> it's so funny to look back and I'm like, I cannot believe how hard I fought to keep such a terrible life. It's nuts. But so I think with people who don't have the external bottom in the same way, that question is harder to answer. And I think the other thing that confuses a lot of us is that we hear this, if you stop drinking, things will get better. Well, I believe that to be a very true statement, but I don't believe it to be a statement that's necessarily true at first. Getting sober, for me, particularly the second time, was a miserable experience. And so I think that I often say to people, don't confuse what being sober is like with what getting sober is like. Because in many ways, when I stopped drinking, my life felt worse for a while. Certainly emotionally, I felt worse. I felt terrible. And so I think that's the other thing where people who don't have a strong external bottom to point to will say, yeah, I gave it up for a couple of weeks. I didn't, nothing got better. Like I didn't feel better. I felt bored. I felt angry. I felt whatever it is. And, and that makes it really difficult because you're like, well, but would my life be better without it? It didn't seem to be better without it for those couple of weeks. You know, I think that's the other thing that complicates it. So again, Again, this can be a longer term process of, of making things better. 
My experience has been most people, once they've spent a couple years worrying about and wondering about whether they have a problem with a substance, you almost assuredly do. You almost assuredly do if you invest that much time and energy into wondering whether you do, or you're investing a lot of time and energy in trying to control it, or modify it, or change it. Those are all things that point to a problem. Now, is that problem alcoholism? I don't know. Are you an addict? I don't know. I don't think those terms are that important. But it does speak to you've got a relationship with a substance that is probably outlived its you're on the you're on the downside of that good versus bad feeling spectrum yeah and like you were saying we're clinging on to this unhappy life and in my case like I thought I blame myself for all the bad stuff like a lot of my consequences were internal they were mental health and I blame myself I thought that was my fault that was just who I was it couldn't possibly be precious alcohol so it's hard when you don't have like you said something to point to like something to, to justify why you can't do this thing anymore yeah, and I'm sure for you, like so many of us, alcohol was at one point an answer to the feelings. Nobody ends up with a substance abuse problem by accident, right? And what I mean by that is not that we're at fault. What I mean by that is it did something that we really needed. Gabor Mate, the, the famous guy who's written so much about addiction and trauma, you know, his question is, you know, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. What is it that the addiction is? What are you trying to solve? You know, what is it that this thing is doing for you and recognizing that that does point to some of where the healing work for you needs to be, you know, and there's so many different modalities these days, so many different ways to get healing and get sober, you know, like if I got if I was trying to get sober today, I think my path would look very, very different than it did. I'm grateful for my path. It brought me where I am today. I think I got a lot out of 12 step programs. There was a lot of benefit in them. They don't remain a central part of my life, but they they were for a number of years. They saved my life twice for sure. How did you approach it differently the second time around? I really realized that if I was going to be in a 12-step program and I was going to work the steps, which is what a 12-step program kind of orients around, then I was going to need to deeply engage with step two, which says, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, which talks about turning our will and our lives over the under, you know, to the care of God as we understand. And I was like, what does that actually mean to me? Not what do I think it should mean to me? What do I wish it meant to me? What does it actually mean? And so I really had to work on that. And I ended up with a very different conception. I really went to that like higher power idea. What has more power than me in this situation? And one thing I landed on was simply the group. The support of the 12-step fellowship was a power that I could rely on that could help me. You know, there's uh, the people would make an acronym out of God and call it, you know, um, group of drunks, you know, and I was like, okay, <laughs> that works. That works, right? Like that can I be like my that. God. That works. And then the other thing was, and I had realized this from you know, having been sober before was that there were certain principles that when I sort of aligned my life with, when I tried to live by, I was just a happier, healthier person. And that I came to believe those principles could also act as a higher power to me. And so in step three, we say, you know, turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. I went, all right, I'm going to try, you know, what that step means is for me, it became, I'm going to try and live by these principles to the best of my ability. So that was where I I landed. And those were two things that I genuinely did believe. I did not only believe, I would even say kind of knew in a way like that other people 
are critical to getting sober. And I think that's true. It doesn't matter what modality you pick, what group, non-group, do it on your own. I think that doing it alone is not a good way to do this. So other people, I think it's foundational, you know? And then for me, it was, yeah, there are certain principles or ways of thinking or relating to the world that work better for me, that work better for my mental and emotional health than others. And can I try and live by those? So that was kind of how I ended up with what was for me a spirituality that really did work and worked within AA, within that framework that I was in. I like that you said not what you should do, what actually works for you. And I think so many of us get stuck on should. Like I should stop drinking or I should drink less or I should go to AA and believe the thing or I should do this. And then we don't actually like want to do those things or we don't believe those things, you know, whatever the case is. And I think should is a very tough place for people to be. Should is a tough place to be. And at the same time, it is where we often find ourselves at the end of addiction. And this gets to where, you know, there is some, you know, there's some degree of faith in getting sober. And this is part of why I don't think we can do it alone. Because if we are around other people, and again, those that can come diff- lots of different ways, we're able to see other people who are like, hey, I went through this and I'm standing over here and life is much better. And I can go, well, I don't know that that seems possible for me. I've got people I'm looking at who are like, yes, come on, so come over this way. You know, so I am doing that on faith to a certain degree. Early addiction is really, or early recovery is really interesting. I got sober, as I mentioned, pretty hardcore. You know, they used to say to us all the time, you know, take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. Like basically shut up. You don't know anything, right? Which is not the most friendly way to welcome people to recovery. There was something in that that was somewhat true, which was all my best attempts at living my life had kind of gotten me where I was at. And so I did need to be open to some new ideas. I did need to be open to some new approaches. You know, I did need to suspend my disbelief a little bit. And yet we don't want to remain in that position forever. And that's ultimately what sort of drove me away from 12-step programs is that there is this continued dependence upon the program or your sponsor, or there's this sense of like, you know, that we say say all the time, you know, well, we're, we're all sick here. And after a certain number of years, I went, I don't think that's true anymore. When I got here, yeah, I was but I don't think I am anymore. Do I have challenges? Of course. Am I learning to relate to the world? But a lot of times people draw a stark divide, particularly in 12-step programs, they would call us, you know, there's us and then there's the normies, as if we were that fundamentally different than normal people. And in the beginning, in some ways, I was very different, right? Because, I mean, I had oriented my entire life around alcohol. But as time went on and I reintegrated myself into the world, that difference between me and quote-unquote normal people shrank. And I started to be like, no, this is the human condition. The human condition is that life is difficult some of the time, that life is hard, that we we struggle, that we don't know the right answer, we're confused, we're down, you know, difficult things happen. That's part of the human condition. And so for me, that was where I sort of felt myself moving out of 12-step because I was like, I don't orient in the world in that way anymore, you know, as still being sick and as still being fundamentally different. Now, I do think I'm fundamentally different than the 
guy in the office next door, in, I don't know him, but let's assume he's, he's a non-alcoholic. I don't think I can drink safely. He probably can. So in that way, I'm different. But that's just about a substance I put in my body. You know, it's like you know, if somebody had a peanut allergy, I wouldn't be like, well, I am, you know, that guy and I are radically different. I'd be like, no, we just, he, he can't eat peanuts and I seem fine with them. Yeah, you're not the normie in that case. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Exactly. I like that idea of reintegrating over time. And it's a process. It's not just, you know, getting rid of the substance and going through withdrawal and then bam, you're great. <laughs> yeah. Heroin addicts are notorious for believing that the worst part is the withdrawal. I just repeated this cycle over and over. If I could just get through withdrawal, this problem would be gone. So I would, all right, I'm going to hole up in a hotel room, take lots of cold medicine until the withdrawal symptoms pass and, you know, all these different things. But no, that is just the, the beginning, right? There's a whole change in, for most of us, in, in how we orient to life. And, and that light, that, or, that reorientation, at least at a, at a, I think at its most fundamental level, is an orientation that says, I can take not feeling good without having to rush off and change it. I may not like how I feel. I wish I didn't feel this way, but I don't have to run off and make it different. What I don't like be is a physical from a withdrawal symptom or it's emotional. You know, I think for me, that was really, it feels like that's always been the turning point in my sobriety is when I went, okay, whatever comes, I will, I, I can handle it. I'm not saying I will like it, but I don't have to fix it. That doesn't mean I don't work to make it better. It doesn't mean I don't deal with it, but it just means that I don't panic and have to go, you know, like, oh God, I gotta, ha you know, I gotta make this go away. I can't face this. I can't feel this. Yeah, that's been key for me too. And just not escalating things so far. Like some, I mean, I still do it. So <laughs> I'm working on it, but something would happen in the past and my brain would be like, like little explosions inside, like can't even handle it at all. And then I have to go drink. And now I have to, like, I still have the same triggers and challenges. I just have to kind of exist <laughs> in the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a, I think that is a fundamental part of what recovery is about is learning to do that. How do I manage these really uncomfortable feelings without picking up a drink, you know, or a drug? How do I do that? And that's what all the different tools and all the different approaches are really trying to answer is how do you do that? Do you think that's one reason why people will go back and forth so much? Like we all go through stages to getting sober and there's one really long stage where you recognize, you know, maybe you got something going on here and you feel like you want to change it, but then you don't and then you beat yourself up for it or you change it for a few days, you know, and then you relax back and beat yourself up for it. Do you think dealing with emotions is, is part of why that happens? Yeah, I think so. Again, it gets back to we loved alcohol or drugs more than the average bear. And why? It's probably because it was doing something for us emotionally that we needed in really, you know, you can look at really extreme cases of people and you can be like, you know what, I think, and you hear people say this, I think drinking kept me alive. I was in such a bad situation, whether it was with my parents or abuse or different things. I was in such bad shape that drinking was like, it just kept me alive. I think that's one of the main reasons is we can't handle the emotions. I think there are other reasons, one of them being, which we sort of talked about before, which is that 
it doesn't immediately feel better when you get sober. And then I think the other is, I think there's an element of the human condition in this, which is that like when things are bad, we're a little bit more diligent. And then when things get better, we become less diligent. All you have to do is look at the complete failure of diets to last. And you see like, this is a human thing. Like, okay, I'm feeling really bad about my health. So I'm going to eat better until I hit this goal. Then I hit that goal and I'm like, I'm feeling pretty good, right? And then I pick up the old behavior again. And I, I run it out again until I'm like, oh man, here we are again. And there's this back and forth. And so I, I think we see it in things, you know, we see it with people exercising. We just see it in lots of different areas. So I think there's a variety of different things that contribute to the it making it hard. And I think you're right. That is a long period this starting to recognize there's a problem and then actually getting to the place that something changes. I mean, I think I recognized I had a problem with substances by 19. And, you know, it was the next six years of various attempts to make that better, which never, you know, never lasted very long. And as we talked about, this whole bottom thing is another issue. You know, some of the people I've noticed in recovery, I know people who got sober with me the first time and then went back out like I did, and they've never been able to get a period of sobriety again. And I think some of it is it never gets bad enough, but I wouldn't want their life. I mean, I feel bad for them because every time I see them, they talk about how they wish they could get back, how they wish they weren't this way. It's like you're not in hell, but you're certainly in purgatory. We, our lives can be so much more than that. I think that's the other advantage of not looking at this only as like, well, am I bad enough to need this? But like, what would true emotional, mental, physical health look like? Wouldn't that be great? You know, now I'm aiming at something positive and then it doesn't matter how far I've fallen. It gets to, I'm not at my potential. I'm not the person I want to be. I, there's more here that's available and what's standing in the way is this substance. I like that. I like spinning it around so it's not looking at, it's not that bad yet. You're instead looking at, well, it's not good either and focusing on that side of it. Yeah. And I think we all have some vision in our heads of what a better version of ourselves looks like. And we can use that to whip ourselves and feel bad, right? That's not what we want to do with it. But we can also use it to inspire ourselves. We can use it to be something that we want to aim at as a vision, as a goal, as a place to go. And I think that's a better use of that than the negative use of it. Yeah, I think a lot of people will get some amount of sober time in and then they'll go back and then they'll say, I'm just not motivated enough or like I'm not strong enough. A lot of people have said to me, like, I wish I had your amount of self-discipline. I don't think that it's any of those things. And I think the beating yourself up part of it and like labeling yourself as all these negative things, like I'm weak, I have no motivation, I have no discipline. I think that's what then keeps us stuck too. It certainly can. Yeah, absolutely. I see that in a lot of coaching work that I do with people that's a little bit more behavioral, it's less addiction, is this constant feeling bad about ourselves. There's a researcher out there who's done a lot of research on, on change, and he has a phrase I love. He says, we change better by feeling good than feeling bad. And I think that's really true. Now, again, sometimes bad is the thing that kicks it off, but it's not the thing that can, I don't think it's the thing that can sustain us. I don't think we can 
work forever in the absence of something bad. It'd like to keep something bad away. Because part of the problem with that is the further you get away from the bad thing, you forget all about that it's bad. Whereas if you're like, I'm growing, I'm changing, I feel better, I'm excited about the person I could be, I'm, you know, that pulls you along. That brings you along instead of just trying to stay two steps away from the, the boogeyman in the, in the rear view mirror. So yeah, I think that to the extent that we can use positivity to change, that's a that is a more effective tool. Now, again, that's why I say, though, we talk so much about bottoms in recovery, because there is something to be said for consequence, right? Like if I had no consequences of drinking, I would you and I would not be having this conversation, right? I would be out having a drink if I could do it with no consequence. Like, why would I not? It's wonderful, right? Consequence does play a role, but it's not the only game in town. What I've often said is I've tried to think about like, what is it that sort of works? And I think when two things come together, these can be really fertile soil for recovery to bloom. And that's some degree of consequence, some degree of recognizing like this isn't working. And then also some degree of hope that says there is a better life available for me. When those two things come together, I think that is a place that recovery can grow out of. If you don't have either of those, I think it's difficult. If you get all the consequence and the bad without the hope, that doesn't work. I've been there. That is a dark place to be. But if on the other hand, you know, you're like, well, I could change my life, but why would I? You, you kind of need both, I think. How do we get the hope part? I think it comes from other people. I don't think we can get it on our own. Most of us, most people who are going to be listening to this have tried on their own and failed enough times to make this change that it's not working. And so we don't have much hope. But when I can see, when I can talk to other people who can say, I was right where you were and I felt exactly what you felt and here's where I'm at now, that's where I think the hope comes from. And then it starts to, we start to get some tastes of it for ourselves. And then as we start to get tastes of it for ourselves, it can be a little more self-sustaining. But I think all of us at different points, no matter what, our hope or our support comes from other people. I just think, A, with recovery, it's absolutely true. But I would more broadly say with life, we need other people. We don't thrive on our own. I look at smoking sometimes, and I've had a lot of friends of mine, former heroin addicts, be like, it was harder for me to quit smoking than it was for me to quit heroin. I'm like, well, that's an interesting thing to say. I think there are a few factors in that, but I think one of the factors is that these people who got sober from heroin did it with a great deal of support. But when they wanted to quit smoking, they just decided today I'm going to quit smoking. And it didn't work because they did it entirely on their own. And so I think the hope comes from, it's a long answer, but the hope comes from people around us who have gone ahead of us and can point to, yeah, recovery is possible. Yeah. And I think that is a good analogy for anyone that feels like their drinking isn't that bad yet to look at it like smoking. Like you don't have to ruin your life from smoking to quit. You just, you know, eventually decide things would be better for you if you did. Like it doesn't have to be this huge thing in your life. Yeah, it's back to that very sort of basic, would my life be better without this, you know? Another way of looking at it is like, what do I want out of life? Most people, if you ask them that question, they're not going to say alcohol. They may feel that if they're in the middle of a craving, right? But if we get underneath that, they're going to say, I want to be a good mother and I want to run a marathon or I'd like to start my own company or I'd, I'd, they're going to list some things that feel valuable. 
with a lot of people, if you look at the pro- what is the primary obstacle between you and that thing, you will find very often that it's the substance. You know, when I work with people who are exploring sobriety, they'll often come to me and they'll be like, look, here's what I believe. If I could just get to the point where I run every day and I get a meditation practice going and I eat well, I think the alcoholism would fall away. The drinking would fall away. And I'm like, that might absolutely be true. You might be 100% correct. It might. There's another equally likely scenario. And it's that while you have the drinking in your life, you are not going to be able to establish those other habits. You'll do good for three days on the exercising in the morning, and then you will get hammered the night before, and you will not exercise the next morning. Then you will feel bad about yourself, which will cause you to getting drunk again. And before we know it, four days have gone by that you haven't exercised. So sometimes, Yes, we can change the things around the drinking and the drinking gets better. But sometimes it's the thing itself. The drinking is the thing itself that's standing in the way of all those other changes. And with people I've worked with like that, sometimes they've been like, we get the drinking set down. They're like, I can't believe how easy some of these things that seemed impossible to do are now. You know, I I, I sometimes this is another way to think about drinking. It may not be that bad, but it may be like going through life with a 50 pound weight on your back. Wouldn't life be easier without that 50 pounds? I mean, you can do it. Sure, you're doing it. It's not that bad. But wouldn't you rather not be carrying 50 extra pounds around on your back? Everything in life would feel easier and better. And so that's another sort of way to orient towards it is what is alcohol or your substance stopping you from? Not what is it doing that's bad, but what is it what is it holding you back from that matters to you? And and to your point earlier, that's where we move from should to what I want. Yeah, I think focusing on what you want and what you can hope for is really important. Like for me, I focused on my birthday, my 30th birthday when I was in my 20s and I was drinking. I was like, by 30, I want to have like, you know, and then I had a list in my head of all these things I hoped would be true. And every year I continued to drink, I got further and further from that special goal that I had. And then eventually, you know, I I cut out the drinking and, and achieved all the other goals. So we don't realize like how low our baseline becomes when we're drinking all the time too. And you, you think it's not that bad, but once you get rid of it, it's like, wow, I can't believe I felt that way all the time. Substance abuse, if it's serious, is a serious, it takes a quite a toll on the system. Even if you're like, well, yeah, I feel hungover for a couple hours in the morning and it's largely gone. It, it, yeah, there is something very different about a life that's not lived that way. I think, like we've said, the mental, emotional, physical health that's available is very different, I think. What about people that don't feel that they deserve sobriety? It's an interesting question, and I don't quite know. I would I would orient towards that in a, in a couple of different ways. I mean, first, what does that even mean? Like, if you say that to yourself, like, really, what does that mean? Deserve. Well, okay, what would I have to do in order to deserve it? Who does deserve it? What's different between me and the people who deserve it? You know, it's the it's kind of like I'm not good enough. Good enough for what? By what standard? Sometimes these things, when we examine them, we realize like, this is just an idea I have that doesn't really mean anything. So scrutiny and examination can be one thing. 
there is also the very real fact that we do know that a lot of people with trauma are also dealing with alcohol and drug problems. And those sort of trauma histories are going to make you feel like you are not good enough or you don't deserve it, no matter what I say right now. The, it's embedded in the system in a really deep way. You know, how does somebody who doesn't think they're worthy of getting better get better is a, is a really good question. I know what I used to do for myself, and my trauma is, at least to the best of my knowledge, although I don't remember much of anything from my childhood, so God only knows, but I think most of it's of the lowercase t type trauma. But what I would do when I would get into this, I'm not worthy or any of that sort of stuff, is I would think back to, and I, I have pictures of myself as like a two and a three-year-old, and that little kid was adorable, and he had the sweetest smile, and he had this light in his eyes, and I'm like, he deserves it, and he is me, right? Or I am him, just with a lot of really bad shit that happened in between that none, you know, the vast majority of was not me or his fault. So that was a way for me to connect back to a part of myself that was uninjured and that I couldn't in any reasonable way be like, well, he doesn't deserve it. I'd be like, well, of course he does. And the reason I feel like I don't deserve it is because of those events. Now, one of the things that happens to a lot of people who are in, have substance abuse problems is we may have done a bunch of things that we feel really bad about in service of our addiction. And that can then be like, well, I don't deserve it because, and again, I think this is where I think Gabor Mate's quote is really helpful. Don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. We did these things in a way because we didn't have other choices available to us. You know, in the same way, I, I wouldn't hold somebody at fault for something that they simply had no choice in the matter. If I came to you and I put a gun to your head and I said, all right, Jill, we're going down and you're going to rob the corner store, you would go rob the corner store. But it wouldn't be your fault. It would be my fault, right? And so that is a way I think we can look at, like, if we've done things we don't feel good about, we've done them because we, we didn't have other options available to us. We didn't have the skills. And the way we change that is we change our relationship with the substance. That's the only way out. So those are some of the ways that I work with not good enough or not deserving, right? Is is either A, just start to really question it. What does that mean? What am I driving at? Or connecting back to some, that adorable little boy. Everybody's adorable at two or three. I'm not really tooting my own horn here, but you know, <laughs> two and three-year-olds are adorable. So I like that. And thinking of, you know, why wouldn't that version of you deserve good things? What what did they do to deserve bad things? I love that. I think that's really helpful. I really appreciate you coming on the show and helping us out and explaining all of that. This gave me a lot to think about actually moving forward. How can people find out more about your work and connect with you? Yeah, the best way is just go to oneyoufeed.net, O-N-E-Y-O-U-F-E-E-D.net. You can find the podcast there. You can find uh, the different programs we do or just find our podcast in any of your podcast players. It's called The One You Feed. Um, and you'll notice it's got two, uh, two wolves on it. And uh, that's the best way. Awesome. I'll have that in the show notes. And thank you again. Thank you so much. I really had a good time doing this. I'm 
Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.